Amen. All right, thanks again for letting me have that moment. Today, um, we are starting, or sorry, we're actually finishing uh, a sermon series that we've been in the last couple of uh, weeks called Faith Misunderstood. If you're brand new, it might feel like you're coming on at the end of a movie, but I'll take a moment to catch you up. That throughout this series, we've been looking at the different postures or approaches that we take when it comes to relating to God. And how ultimately these approaches that we've been looking at, how they leave us most times feeling a little bit discouraged or disappointed or frustrated or leaving us desiring more in our faith journey, more in our relationship with Jesus. And so over the first couple of weeks, the, the postures that we looked at, week one, we, we looked at a posture that we just simply called genie in a bottle. And this sounds just, or it is just exactly how it sounds, that where we look at God as this genie, we rub this bottle, he appears mysteriously in smoke and gives us the desires of our heart. That's the expectation, at least, of this posture. It's a posture all about the gifts of God. It's all about the blessings of God, but not really about God himself, which leads us longing. The second week that we looked at, we looked at a a posture that we call the command giver. That this approach is all about performance and obedience, specifically to the law. And what we said is, is that oftentimes when we approach God in this way, the way that we think is, is that if I'm obedient to the laws that he's given, if I'm good in that way, then I'll be favored and loved and that God will bless me. And for those who aren't, they're not favored, they're not loved, and therefore cursed by God. In week three, last week, Pastor Chris came and gave a great message on an posture that we call the principal maker. And that this posture, this approach to God, the way that we relate to God in this way is that we think of God as distant, that he's out there in heaven and he has very little concern for the world and therefore very little concern for us as individuals. But what God has done is that he's created this universe and around this universe he's created principles like gravity or the way to run business or the way to organize our families. And if we just follow those principles, whether it be with God or without God, that if we follow the principles, ultimately we'll have success in this life. And what we've done week in and week out as we've come to these approaches of God, we've said that, look, there is a reality of truth in all of these, that blessings are good, that God wants to give us blessings, that obedience is important, that the principles that God gives in the Bible, that they really do work. They really do work in this world. But if these approaches to God, if these things for God become the primary way that we relate to God, the primary, you know, mode of our faith journey, then ultimately we will find ourselves living in the shadows, never really seeing who God is and never truly experiencing the beautiful life that is had with him. And so thus far, that's where we've been in this series. And today we're going to wrap all of that up by talking about the final posture, and that posture is what we're just calling the incapable God. Now, this title is a little bit weird, and so let me just take a moment to help you see what it means. That this approach believes that what matters most in this life when it comes to to God, what matters most is how much I can accomplish for him. In other words, God is incapable because he needs me to accomplish things on this earth for him. And consequently, with this approach, the most significant life that you can live, the most significant life that I can live, is when we accomplish great things for God. And if you don't, well, well, then we feel like somehow we've let God down. That somehow we've missed out on God, what God wants us to become. When it comes to this approach of relating to God in this way, it is so common in the church world. In fact, it's, it's part of my story. 
Say, I went to a pretty academically rigorous uh, seminary, and everyone there had big dreams and big goals and big aspirations, and then there was me. Like, as I went to seminary, one of the common questions that you would find on campus is that people would ask you, what doctorate program are you going to after you graduate? I mean, it made sense, right, that after you got your master's, you would go on and, and you would get your doctorate. Except for me, I didn't have any plans to get a doctorate. In fact, the only doctorate I ever plan on getting is one of those honorary ones where someone just hands me it and I go, hey, look, I've, I've arrived, I'm a doctor, right? Like, that was the only interest I had. And so when people would ask this question on campus, and it happened often, I would just answer with, you know, I, I don't actually plan on getting a doctorate. I, I just want to be a pastor, and what would follow was like, oh man, that's really cool. You're gonna write books, be a big time, you know, pastor, be big time. It's like, no, I'm not smart enough to write books. And uh, now I have a lot of interest in, in being big time. I just, I just wanna be a pastor. And, you know, prayerfully, I asked God that if I could be a pastor at Crossroads, that would be really cool. Earnestly, that was my 18-year-old prayer. And so these conversations over the course of my three years were always kind of awkward. That every time these conversations would happen, I always felt like everyone else had life figured out. Everyone else had God figured out. Everyone else had Jesus figured out. Everyone else had figured out of what they were going to do big in the world, changing the world for, for God's glory. And then there was me. And, and I would sit in these moments and I would question and I would wonder, am I, am I doing enough for God? Is the dream of being a pastor at a local church, is, is that enough? Is that ultimately what God wants me to come, become? I mean, have you ever felt that in, in your life? Or, or maybe for you, when it comes to your faith journey, you find yourself living in chronic shame because you find yourself tripping up over the same sin. And you think to yourself, you think about your life. How am I ever going to achieve what God wants from me? How am I ever going to do what God needs from me if I keep tripping over, over the same sin time and time again? Or, or, or maybe for you, you were a part of a church once. Maybe you grew up in a church that measured life by how effective you could be for God. And those who did big things for the kingdom were the ones who were celebrated time and time again. And maybe unintentionally, you begin to believe that if I really matter, if my life is really going to be significant, if, if my walk with, with God's going to mean something, then I need to accomplish some big things for God. See, all three of these, all three of these are examples of the same approach of approaching God, of relating to God, where we work so hard to achieve, to find success, to measure up, to do our best so that God and his missions and his purposes can be accomplished in this world. But here's my question to you today. What if in all of that, the achievement, the success, the drive, the doing great things, the striving to change the world for God, what if in all of that we actually miss the points? See, today, if you have your Bible, I want to invite you to Luke chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry. We're going to put all of the verses on the screen today. But as you turn there, know that Jesus is really in the last year of his ministry. And in the previous chapter, Luke chapter 9, we have the pivotal moment in Luke's gospel. We, we call it the, 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 the Mount of Transfiguration. It's up on top of this mountain where Jesus, for a moment, pulls back the curtains of heaven. And for just a glimpse, we get to see the glory of God. We get to see the power of God. We get to see all of it displayed in the person of Jesus. It's this like mind-bending, transcendent moment that the scriptures reveal to us of the glory of God through the person of Jesus. It's the pivotal moment in Luke's gospel. From that moment, the transcendent moment on the mountaintop, as Jesus begins to head down the mountain, 
He is fully aware of the dark days that lay ahead of him. He is fully aware of the intense suffering that awaits him. He is fully aware that as he comes off of that moment on the mountain that the cross awaits for him, that the march to the cross has begun. In fact, the way that Luke records it for us in Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 51, is this. He says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, that is, when the days came near for him to be crucified, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. This is so important for us to understand that Jesus is going to Jerusalem. And the reason that Jesus is going to Jerusalem is his crucifixion. That Jesus didn't get crucified by accident. He wasn't a victim here. This wasn't a mistake. That this is Jesus setting his eyes ultimately on the cross where he would go to sacrifice himself for your sins and my sins, for the sins of the world as our Savior and our God. This journey to the cross will ultimately take a little less than a year, about nine months or so. And every step along the journey, Jesus' story will intensify. And so as we turn the page from chapter 9 into chapter 10, with all of that as the background, we find a story of achieving great things for God. We find a story of successful achievement of things for God. And in it, we discover what truly matters. In Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 1, here's how it's recorded for us. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two into every town, places where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick, and in it say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter, to, to enter into a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. Now, the intensity of this story is probably completely lost on us, but it is one of the coolest stories that we have in all of the Gospels. You have Jesus rounding up 72 of his followers, and he invites them into this life or death, mission impossible, epic kind of journey. And he begins by looking at them, and he says to them, here's your mission if you choose to accept it. Then I'm going to send you town to town throughout the countryside of Jerusalem. And as you enter into the towns, you're going to proclaim that the king has arrived, the king has arrived, and with the king's arrival comes good news of great joy for all people. But be aware, this mission isn't for the faint of hearts. In fact, at every moment, you're going to be hunted as if you are a lamb among wolves. Matthew, one of, of Jesus' other disciples who records this story, says that these wolves will take you to court, they'll flog you in the synagogues, they'll drag you off to the rulers, that they will persecute you. However, if you accept this mission, Jesus says, you will heal the sick. You will raise the dead. You will cleanse the leper. And you will cast out demons. I mean, just imagine if this was you in this moment. 
And as you go out into the world, just imagine if by a touch you could heal someone's cancer, that you could raise a loved one from the dead, that with a word you could cleanse someone with skin disease, by a prayer you could cast aside a demon the way Von Miller cast aside quarterbacks. I mean, just imagine the excitement of the moment. Imagine the, the excitement of the feeling that you would get knowing that God is using you to intervene in a miraculous way in the life of someone who needs it, the gusto of achieving something great like that. I mean, you and I, we're just like them. The 72, they're like, we're in. Where do we sign up? And Jesus begins to send them out two by two into the countryside. And as they go out into the countryside, they proclaim, the king has come, the king has come. And wouldn't you know, the words of the king start coming true. And through them, miraculous things start to happen. And as they make their journey back to Jesus, they're high-fiving and they're fired up. I mean, Luke tells us in verse 17, uh, 17 that the 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us. I mean, they're hooping and hollering and fired up, high-fiving, and Jesus jumps in. He says, yeah, buddy, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. I mean, in other words, Jesus is like Satan's power here. Satan's power. Like, it is, it's falling. Like, Satan's power and influence in this world is teetering on the brink of destruction, of extinction. I mean, those are big words, aren't they? And Jesus uses this moment, he uses this moment to help the disciples and by extension us to see that some of the most powerful signs of the enemy's demise are the victories that we have in ministry. I mean, come on, Jesus sent his Holy Spirit, right? Jesus sent his Holy Spirit to, to dwell within us, to be with us, to give us authority, to empower us, to move mountains as we're going about his purposes, his work, his mission that he's given to us. I mean, this is an exciting moment. Look at all that they've achieved, all the success that they've had. They've high-fiving, they're hooping and hollering. I mean, this is an exciting, intense moment. And so it comes as a bit of a surprise when Jesus looks at the 72 and says this in verse 20, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that even the spirits are subject to you. <laughs> Wait, what? I mean, Jesus we accomplished. Mission accomplished. Like, remember, Satan fell from the heavens. High fives. Whoop, yeah. Do not rejoice in this, but rather rejoice that your names are written in the heavens. And right here in a story of achieving great things for God, finding success in the ministry and mission of God, we discover what truly matters to him. Not the success that we might have even in the spiritual realm, but that we are with him in eternity. See, I think for most of us, deep down at a core level in our soul, we wanna believe, I wanna believe, that my salvation was not really that hard. I mean, I know that I need him, but the reality is, is I think of myself more as a remodel than a condemned house. And it's way more appealing to my pride, it's way more appealing to my ego to marvel at the wonders of my accomplishments, of my successes, than it is to marvel 
at the wonders of what he has done on the cross for me. Now, just to be clear, I don't think that Jesus' words here are an absolute, absolute prohibition to rejoicing over the accomplishments of ministry, of mission, particularly when people are rescued from evil. And the reason that I say that is because in the first two weeks of the series, we looked at the story of the prodigal son, and in it very clearly, Jesus says, rejoice when the lost son is returned. Rejoice when the prodigal came home. Like, we, we look at this, and, and we re- are to rejoice when those who are far away from God are rescued from evil. We're to rejoice in that. And so when Jesus says, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but do rejoice that your names are written in heaven, what I take him to mean by that is that the rejoicing, when it comes to the accomplishments that we have in and through and for God, are cool. They're cool. But there is a greater joy, there is an ultimate joy in realizing what God has done for you. See, what Jesus is is warning us about here is that when we make the accomplishments of God's mission primary, when we take the successes of our lives and we put them up on a pedestal, when our ultimate joy comes from what we've achieved for God, even if it's tossing demons aside like Von Miller, when we approach God with this posture, when we approach God in this way, when we relate to God in this way, we drive ourselves straight to the rebellion of Eden where my value and worth is not determined by what God says, but rather by what I have accomplished. And in those moments when fear and insecurity begin to rise in us, and we begin to feel the anxiety as we try to determine what it is that I'm supposed to do with my life, when I try to determine if I'm doing enough for God in my life, when all of that fear and all that insecurity and all of that anxiety begins to rise, the question that we're really asking God in that moment is this, is how can I prove that I'm valuable to you? How can I prove that I'm worthy to you? See, the work that we are given to accomplish the mission that we were given by Jesus was always intended, was always intended to be done in communion with God. It was meant to be motivated by love, not fear, that the excitement that we feel was not in the accomplishing of great things for him, but rather that we got to accomplish these great things with him. That's what was always intended. And so when we read Genesis chapter 3 and understand that with the rebellion of man comes the broken relationship with God... Here's what happens to us at a core level. That after the fall as humans, we we maintained our sense of mission. We we maintained our our desire to achieve, to subdue, to, to have dominion, to control. But now it's outside the presence of God. And when our work is pursued without God's love, even divine work, when it is pursued outside the love of God, what was intended to be very good becomes uh, becomes twisted. It becomes destructive to our lives. See, instead of anchoring our worth in God's love and finding the overwhelming joy that comes with that, we search for our value, we search for our worth in the things that we are able to accomplish, the success that we're able to find in God's mission. Phil Visser, 
is the creator of VeggieTales. You may know VeggieTales. It's these vegetables that sing and dance and tell of God's story. You, anybody know? Of, okay, six of you, good, all right. So um, in the 90s, uh, VeggieTales was all the rave. Phil Visser created it, and he created it through his production company called Big Idea Productions. And like I said, in the 90s, it was all the rave. In fact, in 1997, this Christian company made it onto Business Inc.'s top 50 fastest growing companies in the United States. Sales were high, money was coming in, they were doing great things for God. However, by 2003, things began to shift. Sales were down, the movie that they had made didn't find traction like they thought it would, and they were on the verge of ruin. In fact, by the end of 2003, Big Idea Productions filed for bankruptcy. And Phil Visser, who, had, who, who intended and built this Christian company to accomplish great things for God, was now belly up. And after Big Idea Productions died, Phil immediately began to question his place with God, his value, his, his worth. That he had grown up in a church where the heroes were the ones who had accomplished great things, who had began organizations that seriously changed entire countries. And as he contemplated his failure, and the core beliefs that he had built his life around, hear the words that he wrote. He says, the more that I dove into scripture, the more I realized that I had been deluded. I had grown up drinking a dangerous cocktail, a mix of the gospel, the Protestant work ethic, and the American dream. The savior I was following seemed, in hindsight, equal parts Jesus, Ben Franklin, and Henry Ford. My eternal value was rooted in what I could accomplish. Nevertheless, I tell you, do not rejoice in these things. The words of Jesus and the excitement of this grand story of accomplishing amazing things for God, when we hear it, it's so jarring, isn't it? And the reason that it is so jarring for us is because how often we find ourselves relating to God in this way. I mean, if I was to ask you this question, what really gets your blood pumping? Would it be what God has done through you or what he's done for you? When it comes to your prayer life, when you begin your prayers, do you pray, do you begin your prayers with praying what God might do through you? Or does it begin with gratitude of what Jesus accomplished on the cross for you? What gives you ultimate excitement and joy in your life? Is it your achievements, your successes, what you've been able to accomplish? Or is it when you consider the endless, ever-increasing, unearned inheritance awaiting for you on the other side of all of this work in the age to come? Marshall Seeger, a Christian author, writes this. He says, we will not find our deepest joy in the work of our own hands in this age. Even in the sanctified things we do for Jesus and his fame. No, God penned our deepest joy in a different ink and in another world, in a book that promises life long after all our ministry in this life is nothing but a sweet but faint memory. Jesus says that you are to rejoice that your names are written in the book of life. 
And if you're a Christian here and that doesn't elicit much rejoicing in you, let me just take a moment to remind you of what it looks like for your name to be written in the book of heaven. That God has caused you to be born again. That you are ransomed from every evil. That you are purchased with God's precious possession. That Jesus has taken your place under the punishment of divine wrath. That he has forgiven all of your sins, past, present, and future. That you are declared innocent. That you are rescued from the terrors of hell. That you stand righteous in the courts of heaven. That you have peace with God. That you are alive in Jesus. That he has adopted you as a child. That you are a son. That you are a daughter. That he has set you next to him in the throne room of the heavenlies. The Holy Spirit indwells you, that you have been given an inheritance of all things, that he has given you gifts to accomplish the good works that he has set aside before the foundations of the earth to do with you, that he has made you his masterpiece to the point that the angels in heaven are in awe of what you have become, that of all of creation, from the splendor of a sunset over the Rockies, to the beauty of our sand dunes, to the power of the Colorado River, to the majesty of the stars twinkling in the heavens, that of all that God has created, you are his favorite. You are his favorites. He makes every pleasure and every pain in your life. He redeems it for your eternal good. He leads you in paths of righteousness for his namesake, that he will grant you to see the glory of Jesus and then spend a lifetime making you in that likeness, that he will give you a new glorious body that you can use for all of eternity to enjoy all the pleasures of heaven, that you get to be in the presence of God, that you get to be with God forever in eternity. Do not rejoice in these things that even the demons are subject to you, but rather rejoice that your names are written in the book of heaven. As believers, this is our joy. Make that your joy and then spend the rest of your life telling the world about it. If you're here today and you're like, Matt, I'm not sure my name's in that book. We would love to introduce you. We'd love to tell you how. We'd love to spend some time telling you of the story, the great old story of a God who loved you so much, who stepped out of heaven to enter into this world, to ultimately die on a cross so that your sins could be forgiven and that you might have life. If you'd like to have that conversation, if you've got questions about what that looks like, we have a text line, James mentioned it earlier, 720-513-1933. You can simply text the name of Jesus and we'll meet you there. Will you bow with me as we pray? Father, we come to you and, um, Lord, so often we come to you in this posture, high and rejoicing on the things that we've achieved, the successes that we've seen, or at times so distraught, so broken, so filled with anxiety because we don't feel like we measured up. We find ourselves comparing our lives to others, our faith journeys to other faith journeys. And in doing so, we either find ourselves superior to others and it fills our ego or we find ourselves less than and wondering if, if we're worth anything. 
And so, Father, today I pray that you would meet us right where we're at. That you'd help us see and understand that we would feel to the depths of our soul the love that you have for us. And that our worth and our value would be rooted there. Not in the things that we achieve, not the successes that we have, even as cool as they are. That you would remind us the achievements and the success are, are done with you by our side. And that the true gift of this life is that one day we get to be in your presence forever. As sons and daughters, as heirs sitting next to you on the throne. God, I pray that those thoughts bring rejoicing to our souls. For those who are here today, Lord, who who wonder if, if their name's in that book. Father, I pray that you would, that you would give them the courage to have the conversation, to seek someone out, maybe even next to them, to pull out their phone, to dial that number. Lord, so that they can have confidence of who they are in you. Lord, we give this all to you as we remember and celebrate time of communion together. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We come together on this week of Thanksgiving realizing that in the depths of our sin that there's no way that we could ever save ourselves. That only by the cross of Jesus where his body is broken, his blood was poured out, do we have life. And so today, filled with gratefulness and rejoicing in our spirit and our heart, we eat of the body, we remember, and we give thanks. And we tuck, take the cup, representing the blood, the blood of life. And as we drink, we celebrate the life given to us in Jesus. Today, if you need prayer, we'd love to join with you in prayer in-house. You can make your way to the banner. Online, you can click the button and we'll meet you there. In-house, I'm gonna invite